we are left with our own personal choices. I mean, people who live in horrible, destitute poverty have no choice. And of course, they're not gonna choose voluntary poverty. And we consider poverty, um, you know, living without the luxuries, you know, being grateful for the basics and not accruing at the expense of someone who is not getting enough. Are we walking a path of peace with love and kindness, hand in hand with those who need us most? How can we contribute to disarming violence and alleviating suffering to build a more just society? In this episode, granddaughter of Servant of God Dorothy Day, peace activist and Catholic worker movement leader Martha Hennessy shares her mission of serving others by building a community of love. We try to practice the works of mercy, and um, one of those is to visit the prisoner, you know, feed the hungry, clothe the naked, um, attend to the dead and the dying. And attending to the prisoner means sharing that life. As far as I'm concerned, if we're going to have prisons, we all need to experience what that means, um, because it, it is kept so hidden. No one um, in the public can even begin to fathom what is happening to the lives of these uh, prisoners. As Christians, we are called to lead the revolution of the heart by actively practicing the acts of mercy that God has entrusted to us. This is Living the Call. Martha Hennessy, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Charlie. It's such a privilege to have you. I'm eternally grateful to our friend, my newer friend, you've known him for a while, but Anthony Santella, who, uh, who introduced us, um, and, and consequently, I don't know if you know this, but also or reintroduced me, I should say, uh, to the work of, of your grandmother, Dorothy Day, that I've been reading as voraciously as one can uh, in between the moments of the day. But uh, it's so great to have you, especially today, as we're recording on November 8th, which is um, her birthday. Yes, 124. <laughs> wow. Wow, that's great. You know, what I, I you have such an incredibly interesting life and we're going to talk about you know a variety of things about your work, your activism, the things that are on your heart, um your walk of faith, all of these different things. But there was one thing that I read just recently that struck me that I thought was an interesting um entree to at least the the influence of your grandmother on your life and on the on on uh, the Catholic Church across the board and it was a quote from you and I don't know if I heard this or read this but you said that whenever you talk about her about Dorothy Day that you get one of two reactions you get people who say who and you get other people who say oh my god and your quote was, um, once you get to know her, she doesn't let you go. And I can affirm that, Martha, because in my reading of her, which has been very, very recent, I got to tell you that her thought is is just, you know, and her spirit is really something that I've really integrated and taken as my own since I've been reintroduced to her. So I thought that that quote was very meaningful and certainly spoken from the vantage point of an expert like you. Oh, thank you, Charlie. And also, they always ask, you mean Doris Day? <laughs> <laughs> Doris Day, exactly. Yeah, no, not uh, not the same. But um, I, I mean, your influence or her influence on you. Um, you know, a lot of people don't know that Dorothy Day had had one child, which was your mother, and 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 your mother had a number of children. But but um, her influence on on you, on your life, on your upbringing, on your experience. Um, I mean, has been I can imagine pervasive. I certainly see it in evidence in the work that you're doing now. Absolutely. How could one not be influenced by a grandmother like that? Um, but I do want to say that she was a very um, natural, normal, warm, quiet granny also. And I really did not um, fully understand uh, her place in the world um, until I was a bit older, of course, um, when, mm. we would, when we would visit the... Um, Catholic worker farm in the summertime. So it, you know, it, she has evolved in my life continuously and I am now 67 years old. And I would say that, you know, the seeds are still growing and changing. Were you, were you conscious of her work as a child in the sense of recognizing that what she was doing was 
at the very least, unorthodox, um, unusual, special? Was there a sense of that? Or was it more like, you know, this is my grandma and what she gets into and her life is her own and I'm not as, as, in, as intertwined in that? No, I would say all of our lives, the three generations of us, was very embedded and intertwined. And yes, I was acutely aware of, uh, at a very early age, I was made aware of the suffering of the world, you know, through Mm. my mother and my grandmother. And, you know, she came to speak in Vermont, and she was shouted down, and my family was actually mistreated. because people called her a communist. Um, so I was very aware early on that the work that she was doing was very unique and that it was very beloved by some and very despised by others. So it was a real strange um, uh, comparison, um, that, that awareness of the good and the evil of the world. Sure. How did you process that um, criticism or that pushback from the world during that time? And and, and we should note that it was, you know, obviously a a time, I don't know the exact years that that this was, but a time in the, you know, perhaps 60s, right, where there was a lot of, uh, in general, a lot of... uh, a lot of uh, cultural conversations happening in a lot of in a, in a variety of sectors. H- how did you, as a young person, process the kind of resistance that you a- a experienced to that message that she was trying to share? Well, I simply watched how Tamar handled it and and how Dorothy handled it, and they were both very gentle. You know, loving kindness is, is the way, and. I was born in the mid-50s, uh, right in the middle of the McCarthy era, and so I sure. gr- I grew up with these stories of she stood against uh, World War II um, in the 40s. Um, she was the first Catholic voice in September of 1945 to condemn the dropping of the bomb. And with the McCarthy era, you know, I certainly felt the, the, the pain and the difficulty of, of that. And then, of course, in the 1960s, as I was growing up, all of the changes that were occurring, the killing off of so many of our good leaders in the 60s. Um, So that's the world. Um, That's the pain. That's the difficulty. That's Christ on the cross. And I think that both um, Tamar and Dorothy were uh, very good at um, going with the flow, accepting, accepting the suffering, accepting the ridicule, um, I would say perhaps both of them were more comfortable with ridicule than they were with adoration. Hmm. Well, that's interesting. How so? Is there an example of that? Um, it's just, you know, being hounded by the media, at, you know, hmm. by the time she was older. Um, an example was a Time magazine reporter was trying to catch up with her, and she just simply said, I've been trying to avoid that person all day. <laughs> <laughs> You know, it's just, you know, she would, she didn't want, this, this is similar to the um, quote, don't call me a saint. She didn't want to be separated out, put on a pedestal, you know. Mm. She didn't want the world to think that only a few holy people can do this work. I mean, we're all called to right. do this work. And so that kind of adoration she wasn't comfortable with, nor nor was Tama. Was, was there, was there... I guess equally on the other end of the spectrum, any concern or um, or thoughts from her or from your mom on not being identified too closely with a kind of secular activism that began to take very much root at that time as well, and which continues in large part to this day. Was there was there that as well? Like, hey, don't call me a saint, but also I'm not Lenny Bruce either. Like, there's something different, or was it just like how did they how did they take that? Well, we live in the secular world. Um, It was something that we have to deal with, all of us, in all of our lives. Mm -hmm. And, you know, she was a Catholic convert. Um, I was raised Catholic. Uh, We are Catholic. And the whole world is not Catholic. Um, I think that Dorothy was um, very um, open-hearted. She did engage in ecumenical efforts in her time. And yes, you know, the the sexual revolution of the 1960s was, you know, very scary and, and very, uh, had a lot of implications 
um, for people, for women and girls. Um, and she was just so acutely aware of, of, of all of that. Um, and the secular world will always uh, be there and will always be giving us, you know, the, the horrors of the capitalist system. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, we're here to be witnesses. We're here to um, take a stand when it's when people are, you know, being abused and, and suffering. And, and we hope that the secular world will take note of this. Um, but of course, there's also the work with the UN. Um, there are these other organizations that we must continue to work with to make for a better world. One of the things that most impresses me about you, about yourself, you know, and your family, and certainly um, Dorothy Day, is living this idea of being in the world but not of it, right? So to your point about we live in the secular world, this is what we have, and we have to live that that Christian witness throughout it and can't abandon our brothers and sisters just be you know, just because we happen not to like something. And really living that uh, in a very real way. I think it's easy for, at least in my experience, it seems like it's easy for some people to say, well, I've got my Catholic faith sort of over here, and I have my secular activities over here, and live a much more compartmentalized life. Yes, uh, that business of, you know, personal salvation. If I go to church every Sunday, um, if I follow those rules and regulations, and yet I still live in a racist system and contribute to a racist system, I think, you know, the beauty of Dorothy is that she had a fully integrated life, her spiritual life, her daily life. Um, there was no difference um, between, you know, her faith and, and how she lived. And I think that is a dilemma for Catholics today where, you mm. know, they're told to support war. Um, and Jesus said, put down your sword. So that that is a dilemma for all of us. That's right. And Isaiah said before that, which I know has been a source of inspiration for you about not only putting your sword down, but turning that sword into something else, mm. into a plowshare specifically. Transformation, yes. <laughs> and you've talked about just really, even in the last couple of phrases, um, you've talked a little bit about uh, the sense of militarism and, you know, some of the, the evils that we live with, racism, etc. And at some point, you had actually identified I don't know exactly, I forget the exact way that you put it, but something like the evil or the demonic triplets, right, of uh, of materialism, racism, and militarism, and how those are really pervasive in our culture, and, and, and maybe in varying degrees throughout the years, right, they kind of ebb and flow, and maybe mm -hmm. some get stronger, mm -hmm. but it seems like they're very related. Absolutely. Martin Luther King Jr. identified the, the triple evils uh, of... Um militarism, materialism, and racism. And I think that we have been practicing this model, you know, since the Roman Empire. <laughs> and mm. I think it just exponentially becomes more evil and more powerful and more pervasive. And, you know, in my lifetime now, it's very frightening to see how those three things do work together to control much of our society, much of our world. I mean, the climate crisis that we're faced with now is absolutely driven by the use of fossil fuels and monopolization of energy sources and, you know, profiteering. And so we were very grateful to Martin Luther King Jr. for his sacrifice and his work that he did. I know that you... Um right now in Vermont, the, the way that you live on a personal level with your family, you, you produce and are self-sufficient to a, to a significant extent, right? I, I think the statistic is somewhere on upwards of 75% of your means are actually resources that you yourself grow and cultivate and do all that. And that's, you know, testament to this, to this, you know, the concept that maybe a lot of people have forgotten that we've, we've done this throughout history and we can, we can continue to do it. When you think about you know, materialism, militarism, and racism, and this is not to rank order them because I realize that's not the case, but in the moment that we're living in today, especially given what you've seen, is there one or another that has a, a certain kind of preeminence to your mind in the culture today versus another one? I, I realize they all work together, yeah. but is there is there a view of that that you have? Well, I try to go back to what Jesus was teaching us. Uh, continues to teach us 
And I would say that the materialism, you know, if we pursue our own physical comfort, that requires a military backup. And, mm. you know, of course, you know, the Pharisees and scribes are saying, who are you hanging out with? Lepers and sinners and tax collectors. And, you know, that's the, that's the racist aspect of it. I would say that, you know, Jesus was trying to speak to the economy. Um, just uh, yesterday's uh, reading of the widow's might, um, the widow with Elijah and the widow um, putting in her two coins at the temple, as Jesus observed. Uh, that's kind of the bottom line. Um, you know, we did have a history of the Jubilee year where debt was forgiven. And I think we are now at such an end game, an advanced stage of capitalism, where the debt and the slavery is pretty much dictating our lives. So I don't know, maybe the materialism is what leads to um, so much strife. And, you know, the basic needs, food, clo food, clothing, and shelter, that's what we should be focusing on. What is it that keeps people from understanding or, or or maybe longing for this material comfort, like to your mind, mm. what are the contributors that that enable someone to to long for these creature comforts and you know worried more about their four hundred one k than for the person who lives next door? How how do we get to that? Very good question. I mean, Dorothy spoke about a revolution of the heart, um, but one very key factor in the Catholic worker movement is what we call voluntary poverty, and essentially, you know, we must live simply so that others can live, and the, our extreme material wealth, you know, the greatest in human history, um, comes at the point of a gun, it comes at the point of a nuclear missile, um, where, you know, the Roman Empire was all about dominating, invading, occupying, extracting, and, you know, crushing countries that didn't comply with what they were after. And the United States has essentially taken on that same role today. We've had six wars in the past 20 years. It's very hard for the public and for the citizens to recognize these wars as wars of imperialism or aggression um, to secure the last of the resources on the planet. We are kind of in the 21st century at the end stage. So we are left with our own personal choices. I mean, people who live in horrible, destitute poverty, have no choice, and of course they're not going to choose voluntary poverty. And we consider poverty, um, you know, living without the luxuries, you know, being grateful for the basics and not accruing at the expense of someone who is not getting enough. I think that's one of the parables, perhaps, that the world requires the most reflecting on today is the mm -hmm. idea that you know, not uh, being anxious about mm. tomorrow and, mm. and really focusing on the providence of God today, mm. who always provides for us. You know, it, it's it's remarkable to me to look at some of the data of young people today, and, and perhaps mm. you've come across this too, Martha, in terms of the level of anxiety, yes. the yes. level of, of, of depression, of issues of wellness yes. that, that seem to be so pervasive and in my own personal walk of faith and an experience in ministry, I can tell you that anxiety, for the most part, it has something to do with fixation on the future, fixation mm -hmm. on what ha what yes. isn't now, right? The eternal moment. Yes. And I can, in the last twenty years, I can tell you just in my own life how much I've come into this idea of of this anxiety that seems to pervade a lot of people, but particularly the young. Absolutely, and I see it in my children, my grandchildren, for sure. And I don't know how much of a role technology plays in this as well. I mean, we we have had technology at our service, but it's <laughs> could be reaching a point where uh, maybe it's a questionable who's controlling who. <laughs> um, the servant has become the master. <laughs> right, right. And there's also the toxins. The toxins in our environment, you know, really set people's um, endocrine systems off. And mm. there's there's so many stressors that we are, uh, you know, just beginning to fully understand, you know, the multiple sources of physical and psychological assaults. So, yes, the anxiety is tremendous. And I, I do think that 
what alleviates anxiety is faith in God, of course, mm. where, you know, the providence is there for us. You know, I believe in Sabbath ep- economics where God gave us enough. We need to learn how to share um, versus the capitalist model of purposefully create shortages, which creates anxiety. And then people work very hard to just get for themselves. And in some cases, create entirely new markets out of whole cloth that never mm-hmm. existed and maybe didn't even have a reason to exist. I, I, I was talking to somebody recently on this show, and I, I'd, I'd, I'd love your thoughts in the context of militarism, racism, and materialism. But I was talking to somebody on the show about the idea that right now, 2021, there are six companies, right, corporations— mm-hmm that each have crossed the $1 trillion Mm. mark of capitalization. Five of those companies are in the U.S., Mm. and all five are situated in the basically the same geographic area and largely are in the same kind of business, which Mm. is technology and media. And when you think about in past times, right, the military power of Rome or uh, you know, other, you know, civilizations. Mm-hmm. And you look at this rise of, of economic power and communication power, you know, held by, you know, a few, a very few people. Mm-hmm. I wonder if some of the materialism begins to, in a way, become a, a, a new kind of militarism, if you will, just given that the power is, is, yes, of course, still in government, but also shifting into the public, into the private sector in a way that at least I, I don't recall ever seeing in my life. Mm-hmm. Very scary. Well, it's idolatry and it's playing God. <laughs> you know, these these people who are trillionaires, um, they are at the top of the the scheme of the pyramid. And, mm. you know, when you talk about having the technology to strike anywhere on earth at any time at your own free will, you know, to kill others, that's, for me, that's uh, playing God, um, that this technology has brought us to such a, a pinnacle of power. And the technology all too much has been pursued in terms of controlling others and, and, and mm. empowering a few, a minority. It's it's not that we don't appreciate what technology brings us to make our lives easier, but it's sort of a, a, a washout, a loss, depending upon how you pursue it and how you apply it. Are you applying it for the benefit of all or, or not? And so, it, you know, it's, it's so seductive and people people just you know end up idolizing everything but god and that's such a great word to use in this context seduction temptation right the idea of serving god or mammon Mm. and mammon has meant many things throughout the ages um but it maybe has taken on a different form but ultimately it is very much a form of idolatry Mm. that we put whatever it is, technology, power, money, the ability to control uh, whatever, communication or or military technology, but whatever that is becomes the end goal to whatever, to our existence and takes just predominance over everything else. Control of others' minds. I mean, they talk about um, Zuckerman, uh, the Facebook um, mogul, you know, influencing a billion people. So that's that's a very scary thing. And something we haven't seen in history. One of the things that I also find remarkable about your life, Martha, is that, you know, look, just to say it in the spirit of the times, right? Mm-hmm. People can talk a good game, but living the principles and the virtue of the gospel is hard. That's why Jesus yes. says, pick up your cross and follow me daily. Yes. He doesn't say, you know, follow me for a week or two until <laughs> it gets tough. And then we'll <laughs> you can put the cross down. You, um, you, you know, just had a a ten month uh, stint in federal prison, or a ten month prison sentence, um, because of, you know, what that court found uh, was a number of different charges due to your uh, the protestation that you made mm-hmm. around a nuclear facility, mm-hmm. and you, like your grandmother, has actually experienced the cost of the gospel, and I I just yeah. find that really interesting. Well, we try to practice the works of mercy, and um, one of those is to visit the prisoner, you know, feed the hungry, clothe the naked, um, attend to the dead and the dying. 
And attending to the prisoner means sharing that life. And the United States has two and a half million people in prison, and as far as I'm concerned, if we're going to have prisons, we all need to experience what that means, um, mm. because it, it is kept so hidden. No one um, in the public can even begin to fathom what is happening to the lives of these uh, prisoners. And so, yes, I, I was at Danbury for five months, and I mean, I, I'm a person of privilege. I, I'm well taken care of. I had a very short sentence compared to what these women are facing. And the money that's being spent is just so, so wasted. I mean, these women, they need to get home to their children. They need to get home to their families. They need education. They need health care. They need housing. They need food. And, you know, the prison system just seems to be our way of scapegoating those most vulnerable among us. And it's, it's also a way of profiteering. The money is being made on, on incarcerating people. Before you went in to serve your sentence, uh, you said that you were getting ready to serve a new community of love. And I thought that that was um, such a bold statement at a time when, you know, not only are we not understanding the dynamics within the prison system that you just described, but we also, to the extent we think of it at all, don't think of it in the context of service or ministry, right? Mm -hmm. That you can that you can walk, have that experience, which nobody would certainly want or elect for themselves, and turn it into an opportunity for, for ministry. Yes, and in Danbury, um, there have been several um, nuclear protesters who have served time there, Dan Berrigan being one of the most prominent but I was um, looking through the chapel library, and there was a book with the name Ardeth Platt on it. And, you know, she was a Dominican sister who mm. did did a plowshares action and served some time in Danbury. And it just felt like home. It felt like community. You know, there was a book on Dorothy Day, and, and people in the prison, you know, do have this memory of those who have come in and served and, and, and provided ministry. I sort of feel like I did my best, but it was just so minimal. I, I just don't think that <laughs> I'm cut out as the way that these other um, folks who have served um, much better than I in the prison system. Well, it may be minimal from your perspective, but I can tell you if you told if you told somebody, "Hey, you got to serve out a ten month sentence," and even if you only were served five months, uh, you know, behind bars. But if you had to, if you offered that out, believe me, there wouldn't be very many takers to that, despite mm -hmm. the, the 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 short stint. As you interacted with um, other other women inmates uh, at Danbury, and they came to know about you to the extent that they mm -hmm. did i guess maybe that's my first question is did they get to know about you what 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 was their response to your being there well in the prison culture you can ask how long of a time did you get but you don't ask each other why are you in here but you know people would look at me and say why are you in here and i would talk about nuclear weapons the nuclear arsenal and you know their immediate response was one of understanding they completely under, especially the black women. They completely understood immediately, you know, what I what I was protesting first of all, and, and why I was willing to do it. And you know, they were very grateful. For the most part, um, the women are struggling to just maintain themselves in this horrific system, and they just they didn't have the energy to expend to any to pursue it any further. But you know, for the most part. They were all very supportive. And, you know, I did my best to start a rosary group and a daily Lectio group, and it was very interesting. I mean, the women are very close to God when they're in such a place of suffering. Mm. Is there a particular exchange or moment during that five months that you thought was particularly instructive to your faith walk? Absolutely. Um, you know, every day was there was an opportunity to, instead of getting angry and impatient, to, to just respond with love, because that's, that's what was so needed. And, you know, I came up against myself, too, in the prison. Um, I was upset with one of the guards, and 
you know, was not gracious, and guard happened to be one of the nicer people <laughs> there. And so I had to learn about myself and my internal rancor, um, you know, walking this walk, you know, volunteering to go into the system and then not resenting what I had to live with. Um, so I learned a lot about myself, and I learned about how, in the end, nothing matters except love. You know, Amen. there's just so many terrible things going on, and you can get into the details of them, but in the end, none of it matters. All we have is control of our own response to that other person in front of us, thinking, okay, this is Christ. This other person is Christ, and that's certainly what Dorothy tried to teach us. You just reminded me with your exchange with the guard or your experience with that guard uh, of, um, you know, going back to the conversation I had with this previous guest about these big corporations that have all of this power. Mm -hmm. In the course of that conversation, um, I mentioned to him when we think about, you know, Mark Zuckerberg or Sundar Pichai or all these different guys who are, who are these people who are running these, we, it's very easy for us to forget also that they are, they're, they're God's kids, right? That's they're right. God's kids That's too. Right. And and um, and I, you just reminded me of that with the exchange with the guard because I think that's another thing that is very easy to to forget is the the people who are administering, who are securing, who are, uh, op, you know, operationalizing mm, these mm. systems themselves mm. are are children of God. That's right. So important to remember that we're all children of God. You know, whether we're Christians or not, too, is the other aspect of that. Um, you know, Dorothy was very clear about saying the mystical body of Christ is available to everyone. <laughs> Amen. Um, but yes, to always remember that, in fact, many of the guards are victims of the system as well. They're just doing this terrible job because, you know, the money, the teachers and the nurses are not paid as well as the Bureau of Prison staff, which is another priority. Wow. We, we've got to straighten out our priorities in terms of, mm. you know, how how we should be paying uh, the workers. But yes, I mean, everyone is stuck in positions that they don't necessarily want to be in. Hmm. Now, you as a person, though, um, have gone, obviously everybody has their faith walk, and there was a period of time I know you were you you were born into into a house of faith, but there was a period of time where you would not have identified as a Catholic. Is that correct? Well, I know that I was always a Catholic. I was baptized a Catholic, but I kept telling myself I'm agnostic. I'm I'm just not sure, um, and I was not a practicing Catholic. Um, so I really did have to go through a, a conversion experience. I I felt like. I was caught between my mother's uh, leaving the church and my grandmother's, um, you know, coming into the church. And, and where mm. where did I stand in that? And, you know, when my father left the family, very difficult time. Uh, my mother was in rural Vermont. She was very poor, nine children and no income, no husband. And we literally had difficulties physically getting a, a running car, getting to church in the cold Vermont winters. So things kind of fell by the wayside, and I, I do feel that Tamar always retained her the best of the Catholic social teachings and the best of um, her faith, um, but it sort of got lost in translation with regard to our relationship uh, to the church, um, mm. and that went on for a good part of my adult life until, I don't know, conversions are mysterious things. I can't necessarily explain what brought me back, but... It was in 2002 that I spoke at the National Women's Hall of Fame to accept the induction of Dorothy into that secular <laughs> event. But I, I gave a three-minute speech, and after the speech, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, she was one of the inductees, came up to me and just simply grabbed my hand, didn't say a word. Rosalind Carter came up to me and said, thank you for your, what you said. I spoke about Iraq. We were about to destroy Iraq. This was uh, 2002, and something happened with that experience, and my life went downhill from there. 
<laughs> it was that that uh, at some point after that experience, you actually got to Hawaii, right? Hawaii was yes. an important uh, yeah. moment for for that for that journey. And I agree with you. I'll affirm that conversions happen. Well, if we're lucky, they're happening every day. That's right. right. Every day we're we're walking a path of conversion. But there's maybe key moments of inflection, let's call it, in that faith yes. walk. And Hawaii was one for you. Why? Yes. Well, I'm trained as an occupational therapist, a, a vocation that I certainly chose based on the influence of Dorothy helping others. Um, a few of my sisters are nurses. And, you know, Hawaii is, uh, I took a job there working with um, very young children, home-based care. It was wonderful. And uh, my landlady had placed um, a crucifix in the little ohana that I rented from her. I put, mm. a, I put a picture of Granny next to the crucifix. I started going to church. Um, I had left my husband and my mother and my family. You know, I was thousands of miles away. And Hawaii is a military outpost of empire and a corporate colony. And it's seen its levels of suffering and racism and thievery. And I don't know. It was a very uh, desperate move on my part. but it it helped really bring me back into the church in a way that I find it hard to explain. Those moments of desperation are prime fodder for the Holy Spirit, I've always <laughs> found. You know, and we find yeah. ourselves in that place we never expected to be. That's when the Holy Spirit is like, hey, you know what, maybe you're here for a particular reason. I love the idea also of the simplicity of things that can be part of that conversion path, that small mm. crucifix. Actually, your grandmother, in her in her conversion story, well, in one of her conversion stories in Union in Union Square to Rome, mm-hmm. talked about as a child getting a hand get, getting her hand on a little Bible, right? And yeah, they were yeah. they were sort of nominally uh, active in their faith at that time, and how that Bible just like I mean. It wasn't even about necessarily reading all of it, but just the fact that it was there yeah. made such a witness for her. Mm-hmm. And, and it was so simple. Somebody mm-hmm. may have just left it in a drawer and never even thought about it. That's right. And, uh, you know, Dorothy sent me a postcard from Rome in 1962 or 65, whenever she was there for Vatican Council. And, you know, she, it was a picture of uh, Fra Angelo's music, musician angel. And she wrote on the back, I was like eight years old when I received this postcard. And then it reappeared in my life. And, you know, she had written on the back of it, tack this on the wall to remind yourself to say your prayers. And so, yes, there are these tiny little things that come to us, threads that bring us to a a greater place. Yeah, it's really beautiful. In my own life, I have the oldest thing that I possess. The not 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 the fact that the artifact itself is old because it isn't, but just the thing that I've possessed the longest of anything in my life mm. is a. I'm looking at it right now. Is a small uh, crucifix that's actually in resin. It's probably this very you know '60s thing <laughs> that somebody took a little gold crucifix and put it in resin in a little form. And when I was a child. I would hold this this oh. crucifix and look at it from all angles, oh. right? And was just really fascinated by mm. it. And I remember at particularly dark times in my life, even when I was what I would classify now as far from faith or far from God, I would take that little crucifix and stick it under my pillow at night. Beautiful. And and Beautiful. and it's so simple, mm. right? But but God is simple and God mm. is caring mm. in in a very um, you know, motherly way in that way. That little mm that little surprise, that delight that can come from something small, but that it's done just for you. That's how he works. Yes, yes. And in the most amazing, surprising ways all the time. <laughs> it's 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 actually very, very true. Martha, is there a difference from your vantage point, given the work that you're doing now and all of the civil unrest that we've had of late, right? I've even mm-hmm. heard, by the way, people equate what we've been through uh, post-George Floyd with almost like a next phase in Mm. the civil rights movement as it relates to black Americans, Um, equal, maybe not equal to in terms of status or whatever, but almost in terms of chronology, you know, abolition and Mm. civil rights in the 60s and this kind of being a next next phase. In that context, do you view any, I guess like A, first, what's your thought on that? And then B, I'm curious about the thoughts around the differences, if there are any, between nonviolence and peaceful protest. Is there, is there a difference in those? 
Is there a difference between nonviolent and peaceful protest? Nonviolence and peaceful protest, right? Because I, I, I recall mm-hmm. the terminology evolving over time. Um, and they may be the same thing. I'm just, I'm just asking from, you know, your perspective on it. I guess for myself personally, um, they're, they are one and the same. And, you know, we have the examples of Christ. We have the examples of Gandhi, and of King, and of Dorothy. And it takes training. It takes discipline. Um, I do believe that... Um, the vast majority of protesters, you know, intend to keep the peace and just want their voices heard or bringing their grievances to their government. Um, look to January 6th to see what a non you know, a, a violent <laughs> approach is. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think for black people in America, they have fit face generations of um, violence directed right at their bodies, Um, even, you know, the youngest child. And I really appreciate how the um, white people are coming together to support the black people with this, you know, police violence, the lynchings, the modern-day lynchings, Um, all of that violence that's that's kept in place to maintain the status quo. we all need to just work so much harder to disarm, you know, the war in our own hearts. And, you know, this system cannot be sustained. We've, we've had enough of this narrative of Christopher Columbus and Isabel and Ferdinand being good Catholic king and queen, um, you know, the torture, the plunder. Um, the world has had enough of that, and we are envisioning a new model and there's great hope. I mean, I believe that the solutions are definitely at our fingertips to, you know, alleviate this um, suffering and and injustice. It's just all about the revolution of the heart as well. Mm. But we do have to change the the systems that dictate how we live. I think the secular world even itself would affirm a lot of what you said in terms of valuing the interconnectedness of human beings, the value of different communities, diverse perspectives, Mm -hmm. the contributions that people from different cultures make. But I think what is the capstone to me, and and certainly, uh, you know, Dorothy Day's thoughts, was that there is no, that brotherhood of of man and and of humankind, there is no brotherhood of humankind without the fatherhood of God. Mm, And so I would... I would affirm that, you know, people today, because I see it in evidence, right? There's a lot of movements around solidarity, mm-hmm. but but they seem to me complete, let's say, in the context of recognizing that we are community and we are valuable and we do have contributions to make precisely because we're a family. And yeah. if we're a family, that means we have a common, you know, parent and, yeah. and, and we recognize that as Christians. But a lot of the world, the secular world that might affirm the brotherhood idea might not affirm the, the, the concept of a parent that loves us. Right, right. And the best we can do is set that example in how we treat each other, you know, the, the loving kindness. And I, for me, my personal experience, it's been a, a really direct uh, relationship from, to my mother, Tamar, my grandmother, Dorothy, and the Blessed Mother. Um, you know, it's the mothers. When I was a child, when I saw uh, portraits of the Madonna and child, I thought that was every mother and child. They were all sacred. Mm. Um, that, you know, that image of mother and child is a very sacred image. And yes, I mean, I do think that the indigenous people's spirituality of North America is a very beautiful thing as well. You know, our mother it earth, uh, our father sky, our mother earth, we're held, you know in her arms and protected. So I saw a beautiful rendition not too long ago. I think it was in um in a magazine called Dappled Things, uh, which I don't know if you're familiar with. Well, you I, know it? I'm familiar with that terminology from um, Gerard Manley Hopkins. From Gerard Manley Hopkins, that's right. Well, that's where it takes its uh, its title. And Gerard Manley Hopkins, for those who may not know, obviously great uh, great poet, Catholic as well, and and maybe connected with a mo- another modern day uh, person who may at one point be canonized with Thomas Merton. Mm. Uh, Gerard Manley Hopkins was actually the root of of his conversion um, uh, to Christianity as well. Mm. 
or to Catholicism rather, he was already a Christian, but to Catholicism as well. But um, I, I, I saw this uh, this cover, maybe it wasn't a cover, but it was art that was featured in, um, in Dappled Things, if I recall correctly. And it was an image of the Trinity expressed through Native American uh, religiosity. Yeah. And it was stunning. It was gorgeous. You know, the, the, you know, obviously it wasn't the, the, the same kind of, um, expression that maybe we would have from a Western or a Latin American context, but it was its own. Mm -hmm. And it really, it shared that beautiful cultural imprint of the Native American spirituality, but in this kind of Trinitarian concept, I'd never seen anything like it. And it was just like, everybody should see this. It's amazing. Yeah. That's beautiful. Thank you. Yeah, of course. Um, I'm wondering if, as you think about your work moving forward, now you've been doing this for quite a long time, um, you know, uh, focusing on, on pacifism, uh, you know, kindness, care, focusing on love, focusing on the areas of, you know, taking what we need and, and doing for others. You've been very focused on this. As you think about you know, now that you've had this experience, uh, uh, you know, with, with this uh, stint in, in, uh, in prison, are you thinking about anything new to add to the repertoire of ways to communicate that to people today? Is it, is it one of those things where it's the same message and it's just like shampoo, rinse and repeat and as often as we can? Or are there, is the, does the ta- do the tactics evolve mm-hmm. over time mm-hmm. given who we're, who we're talking to? I believe there's always evolution happening. And Dorothy herself, I think, was a beautiful example of, you know, how she developed in her lifetime. And so we always do have those examples. And I, you know, I think the biggest uh, lesson I learned with the federal prison experience is, again, it's all we have is love. Otherwise, we'll just have bitterness and violence. And, Mm. you know, I do, Dorothy's canonization um, efforts are in full swing, and I do feel an obligation, all of the paperwork will be sent to Rome December 8th, the Feast of the Immaculate Conception. Everyone's invited to this Mass at St. Patrick's Cathedral, and for me, you know, reading Dorothy's words on pilgrimage, the latest... um, edition of her on pilgrimage the 60s has just come out through orbis books and in there she talks about what is it that we're supposed to do when we're asked to go out and speak we must do it and it's all about clarification of thought it's all about conveying catholic social teaching it's all about simply sharing and with families and students and hearing what people need and i'm just hoping to be able to play a role in spreading the word about who Dorothy was and and how we are to move forward as Catholics today because I feel that the U.S. bishops are simply not hearing what Pope Francis is giving us. I mean, he's he's a pope after Dorothy's heart, and he's so concerned and so loving. And the encyclicals, Laudato Si and um, Fratelli Tutti, I mean, he's giving us such a beautiful words to work with and it's not coming from it's not going to the pulpits in america i agree and, and i agree whatever. and even i would add evangelii gaudium to that as well yes. and his call for yes. a creative apologetics which is yes. Yes. you know the idea of explaining and and um mm. explaining and, and and evangelizing and 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 contextualizing the faith for the time and place that we're in and doing it in new ways to your point on progress it's really beautiful. By the way, I have a special uh, horse in the race for your grandmother's canonization is that I understand that the Benedict, the Benedictine community is praying for that canon, canonization, especially yeah. from one of the articles that I read. And my brother is a Benedictine monk and priest. And so um, the, the Benedictine spirituality is very close to me. Beautiful. Ora et labora. <laughs> Ora et labora. That's absolutely right. So much contained in those two, uh, those two little words. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, now, Martha, before we get on to our, our final, because an hour goes by quick, if you haven't noticed, mm-hmm. <laughs> but, but uh, before we get on to our, um, our final segment here, which is a little, a little game we like to play called Wait What, I want people who listen to this 
to have a sense of how to how to be in touch with the work that you do, with the work of you know the plowshares, with the work of Catholic Worker, with you personally, and you know certainly the canonization process for Dorothy Day. But how would you advise people to to become more aware of your thought, her thought, and the things that you care about? Well, I don't know. I mean, our situation with media, you know, our democracy really does rely on media, and you know, it, the EWTN has a loud, loud voice, and we have to. Uh, the internet can be a beautiful thing. I mean, you can seek out alternative media sources. Um, I would encourage people to read the Catholic Worker paper. <laughs> all of the communities around the country, they all have their own little newsletters. I mean, that's one way of staying in touch with what the communities are trying to do, the current issues in their neighborhoods, what they're facing. Um, you've got to reach out. You've got to reach out to each other. It's the beloved community that helps all of us to uh, learn about what's going on in the world and to stay in touch and to share. Just the, the mm. business of sharing is very important. My my personal hope is for a really incredible podcast series, narrative style, of Dorothy's life and the generations that followed her in your mom and in you. Um, I, I would love for that to be done. She's been the subject of, of film and a lot of work in the past, but just something very, very beautifully done, rendered. And, um, you know, I've always found, and partly because my career is in media, has been in media, mm -hmm. is that a great story can really soften the ground of people's hearts. And, and, and they can communicate and connect with that. So that's my great hope. And look, to the extent I could be associated with it, well, that would be a dream come true. So we'll see. We'll see what the Holy Spirit has planned. Yes. And, and read, Dorothy's, <laughs> read Dorothy's books, too. We're going to put in the show notes um, a, a list of her books. We're going to put uh, links to Catholic Worker information um, and, and other sources. So there will be here... Uh, in the show notes for this podcast, a number of different resources that people can avail themselves of to become more familiar with the work and look for ways to uh, to get involved. Thanks. All right, Martha, are you ready to play Wait What? <laughs> yes. You're going to do great. All right. Now, Martha, I know that you were born in New York, but your home state is Vermont, right? Mm -hmm. So which of these is false about your home state of Vermont? <laughs> Which of these is false about Vermont? Is it A, Ben and Jerry's ice cream gives their ice cream waste to local Vermont farmers who use it to feed their hogs, and the hogs seem to like all the flavors except mint Oreo? <laughs> is it B, Rudyard Kipling, the famous writer who lived in Vermont in the 1890s, invented the game of snow golf? He painted golf balls red so he could find them in the snow. <laughs> or or is it C, Vermont is the only U.S. state that does not allow billboard advertising? Which of those is false? Ben and Jerry's, Rudyard Kipling, or Vermont says no to billboards and it's the only one in the country? I know that the billboard one is true. <laughs> Um, I could care less about Richard Kipling and his golfing. <laughs> um, um, and Ben and Jerry's feeding the hogs. Um, it's a toss-up between those two. And I would guess that um, being the Ben and Jerry's is false. The Ben and Jerry's is false. Sadly, that is not correct. Oh. And, 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 and sh shame on me. I did try to trick you because you're right. Vermont is a state that does not allow billboard advertising, but it is not the only one. Oh. There are actually there are actually four total states, and you you can add uh, Hawaii, which is another important place for you. Mm. Maine and Alaska also do not allow billboard advertising. So it is actually C is the correct answer. Oh, okay. okay. <laughs> Getting off to a, a little bit of a bumpy start, but it's okay. We're going to redeem ourselves here on the last two questions. Martha, you've talked about the importance of Hawaii in your walk of faith. Mm. Hawaii's patron, St. Damien of Molokai, is inseparable from a Catholic understanding of Hawaii. Mm. Though many people know about this great martyr of charity and the mission he led to love and live among the lepers of that time, what many people don't know about his mission 
is that his ministry in Molokai under the authority of his bishop was entirely blank. Was entirely what? So you have to fill in the blank. His mission on Molokai. His mission on Molokai under the authority of his bishop was entirely blank. Fill in the blank. I have no idea. All I know is, <laughs> is that these Hawaiians were dumped there. They were. Um, yeah. So, and he just went to live with them and ended up dying of leprosy himself. Correct. Well, you know his story. Well, the answer to the question is that his mission in this ministry in Molokai under the authority of his bishop was entirely voluntary. Now, that may seem... Uh, you know, perhaps like a, a, a sort of an interesting detail, but the reality of it is, is his bishop was very careful that he didn't want to have any of the priests of the diocese feel that they were doing it under the penalties of obedience. So he actually prayed very much about it and put out word in the diocese. And Father Molokai was one of only four priests who volunteered for that ministry, and he was the first one to go there. So I didn't know that and uh, add that to my list of reasons why I like uh, St. Molokai. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. I got a chance to actually visit Hawaii, and I was the highlight of my trip was actually going to Molokai. That was yes. the highlight of the trip. Yes, a very very intense place, and you know some of the beaches are not open to white people <laughs> for obvious reasons. But yes, a very very powerful place. Hmm. All right, Martha. The last question you are automatically guaranteed to get correct, and it's because it's a time machine question. And here we go. You get a chance to travel back in time to Princeton, New Jersey in July of 1939. There, you meet the now famous theoretical physicist Albert Einstein, who's living in the U.S. after fleeing his native country. Einstein is weeks away from composing a letter to President FDR warning him about the Nazis' discovery of nuclear fission. This letter, which was a major influence on FDR giving the order for the Manhattan Project, which developed the atom bomb and ultimately helped off, helped to set off this nuclear, nuclear arms race we have, um, it, it, that, that's the, the, his letter helped kick that all off. Einstein's, he tells you, you're talking to Einstein, he tells you his concerns are real. He tells you that if the Nazis get hold of this new power, they may use it to build bombs to strike against their enemies, perhaps killing millions throughout the world. Einstein views the exploration of similar weapons by the U.S. as a way to mitigate those risks. Now, you have a chance to weigh in on Einstein and give him some advice at this critical moment. Do you, and what is it? Well, I, my understanding of the history is that we picked up where the Nazis left off with the nuclear bomb. Um, their work it was the foundation for what we then carried through. I don't know what I would say to him. I would say to him, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that we've we've done this. We've done this to mm. to the world. And perhaps that would weigh on his conscience, and he wouldn't send uh, wouldn't send that letter. He actually, from what I've learned, and I'm not an expert, so you probably know a lot more than I do. But what I learned is that he, because he was a pacifist uh, his whole life, and what what he says is he he regards that letter as his quote great mistake, mm. sending that letter because it helped to I guess on some level inspire FDR to to do, to do the Manhattan Project. And you're right that we were already in the U.S. studying the very same thing, enriching uranium and doing all that stuff ourselves, but this kind of lit a fire, it seems, um, to, to move even faster than that. Well, I think that there were many scientists, all kinds of reservations, and I do believe that the, the, the bomb really um, would have been kept from the world, uh, but for a handful of uh, U.S. scientists who mm. really, you know, Satan whispered in their ear, and everyone else's opinions were disregarded. Hmm. As he's wont to do, for sure. He whispers into a lot of ears, and uh, I think, uh, you know, following after examples of charity and goodwill and really living the gospel as, um, as your grandmother and yourself are witnesses to us to do is a way to, you know, keep him at bay to a much greater extent than otherwise would be the case. So, uh, mm -hmm. so we can all take a lesson from that. Martha, what a great privilege to have you. Thank you so much for spending time with us. And, you know, my prayer is, uh, through the intercession of Servant of God, Dorothy Day, is that, is that your ministry and your work continues afoot and that people learn about, about really the beauty of this compassionate approach to dealing with the issues of our time 
and really focusing on these great evils that exist in the world um, and doing it in a spirit of brotherhood and sisterhood. So I, that's my prayer for you. Thank you. And let's look at the log in our own eye before we try to pull the splinter out of the other person's eye. <laughs> Amen. Well said and a good way to end the podcast. Martha, thank you so much. God bless you and your work. If you're listening to my voice and Martha's, that means that you should subscribe to this show. You should share it with friends and family, people you love, people you'd like to get to know to love uh, more closely, but share the show, help it to grow. And we will see you again next time on Living the Call. If you enjoyed this episode of Living the Call, please remember to subscribe and give us a five-star review. Tell someone you love about the show and spread the word. Living the Call is available on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. You can learn more about the organization behind the show by searching for the Catholic Association of Latino Leaders on any social platform or by going directly to call-usa.org. That's C-A-L-L-U-S-A.org. Living the Call is produced by Manu Kasten and Diego Carranza and our friends at Juan Diego Networks. God bless you and thank you for listening.